So the title of the sermon is the question, is God love or is love God? Crossroads, is God love or is love God? And consider this quote for a moment. When 1 John 4, 8 says God is love, it is not saying there is this thing out there called love that God measures up to. There is no dictionary definition of love hovering outside the universe independent of God so that God answers to it. Rather, God himself provides the definition, the reality of what love is. Love is not an abstract concept, but a personal quality of God. Today, you can justify pretty much anything by invoking the word love. If they really love each other, then of course we should accept. If God is loving, then surely he wouldn't. You notice what's happening in these statements. We're no longer interested in the God who is love. Rather, we're interested in our own ideas of love, which become God. God is love is traded for love is God. Instead of going before the creator of the universe and saying... Tell us what you are like and how you define love. We start with our own views of love and we deify them. Now, what does love have to do with a sermon series on elders and deacons? I'm glad you asked. We'll zoom out for a moment. First Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul. Paul in Ephesians 3, verse 2, he says it in Colossians as well, but in Ephesians 3, verse 2, he specifically says he's received a stewardship from God, a stewardship of God's grace for Gentiles. Gentiles are people like you and me who are not ethnic Jews. And Paul has received a stewardship of grace from God to bring Gentiles into God's household by gospel preaching. That word stewardship is where we get our English word economy. Uh, the word stewardship in uh, Ephesians 3 verse 2 is oikonomos. And the English is economy and it breaks down into oikos meaning house, namos meaning law. Economy initially meant law of the house because the economy was dependent on the productivity of the house. In the sense that the apostle is using it, Paul is saying he's been made a manager of God's household. That is, his responsibility is to help bring order to God's house. Not because God needs him, but because God uses means, and he chose Paul for this purpose. During Paul's second missionary journey, Paul came to Ephesus preaching in Jewish synagogues. While he was there, he left Priscilla and Aquila to continue, to continue gospel ministry in Acts 18, you can read about it there, where they met a faithful man whom we know as Apollos. And Apollos needed some teaching. So Aquila and Priscilla pulled him aside and taught him the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And so by the time you get to Acts chapter 19, Paul is now returning for a second visit. And the result of his preaching is that his gospel has resulted in economic collapse of some of the ways the Ephesians were raising money, namely by selling those small temples of Artemis that were replicas of the great uh, Artemis temple in Ephesus. And so in Acts 19, the city comes together in a church, an assembly, because they want to get rid of them. In Acts 20, as Brother Mike read a moment ago, Paul is... Is, is reaching out to the elders in uh, Ephesus. He calls them to meet with them. 
And he warns them that false teachers are going to creep into their congregation. And now, at some point in the future, Paul is traveling toward, or was traveling towards Philippi, where he tells Timothy to go to Ephesus to confront those false teachers. See there in verse 3, he's appealing back to that conversation. And so now, Paul has written a letter to his representative, Timothy, to give him further instructions about what to do while he remains there in Ephesus. And if you want to see the thesis of the letter, um, you can flip with me to 1 Timothy 3, or you can look at your sermon handout. No, you cannot. I left it out. My bad. I think I put it there, and I, I don't know what happened. Uh, 1 Timothy 3. Let's look over there at verses 14 to 15. Here's the thesis of the letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's, the, that's, that's not the whole word oikonomos, it's the word oikos, it's house, the house of God. That is, Paul's mission, or his understanding, is that he is a steward of the gospel to gather churches to support the truth in God's house the way God commands. See the rest of verse 15? The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is to say, God has an intended way, a divinely ordered way, in which he intends for his church to function, which is not open to our own ideas or creativity. That's not to say there's not a place for those, it is to say there is a place where God has said this is how things are to be ordered. That is, the church is God's intended community to embody and uphold his truth to a watching world. Now, I want to ask you for a moment, have in your mind a dream church. What would be the primary virtue of that dream church? You don't have to say it out loud. But just consider it for a moment, and now look with me at 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. You see how Paul's orders to Timothy about God's house or his church apply in chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love. Love is the goal. We want God's will to reveal how to build a church because we want love as the goal. And that's not my idea. That's not the 21st century's idea. That's God's idea revealed through the Apostle Paul. Really, it was revealed through his whole Old and New Testament. But Paul specifically is saying, this is the reason why God's church should be ordered God's way, because we're to be a people of love. And here's our dilemma. I think everyone in this room and outside would agree that a church should be marked by love. No one's going to debate that. But we have to dig further and ask the question, whose definition of love are we talking about? Whose definition of love should govern the church? Whose strategy for making a loving people should build the church? Will we be a church that defends God is love, or will we be a church that defends love is God? Will we pursue God's way 
Or will we know better and choose to build something lesser than what God commands and call it love? Now, back to the elder deacon thing. I want to propose to you today the answer to that question, whose definition of love will we use? The answer to that question will be determined by the types of elders and deacons we put over ourselves in the Lord. A congregation will become what they eat. The teaching of the elders, as made possible by the service of the deacons, will ultimately determine whether we live out God is love or love is God. That's where I'm going. So I ask, do you want Crossroads to be a place where God's love is on display? Crossroads, I charge you from 1 Timothy 1, pay attention to who you put over you as elders and deacons in the Lord. Let's look at this passage together, verses 1 to 2, the source of the command. Verses 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here we have a standard greeting from the Apostle Paul, and it communicates two things. Number one, it establishes the source of Paul's authority. You see it there? It comes from there in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ by command of God our Savior. So one, it establishes the source of Paul's instruction in his appointment. It also establishes the authority of Paul's delegate, Timothy. And you see, he reminds Ephesus that he is an apostle, which means he's saying, you remember those 12 guys whom Jesus chose to take his teaching and to spread it all through the book of Acts? Of course, the book wasn't written yet, and they were in the middle of all of it. But those 12 men whom Christ appointed, one died and was replaced by Matthias. And then we remember Paul is saying, I am now one of those. I have the same authority as those 12 apostles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, not by his own choosing, not by Peter's choosing. What does it say? By command of God. That is To obey God means to submit ourselves to Paul's instruction. To hope in Jesus means to hope in the truth that Paul proclaims. What do we say to those who want to pit Paul and Jesus against one another? We should say, just don't be Christian. Make up your own theology, but there's no history of Christianity without Paul. And I don't mean because Christianity hinges on Paul. I mean the living God, the historic Christ, appointed Paul for this historic task. Those who try to separate Paul from Christ do so for their own fancies and by so doing separate themselves from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I wonder, church, if you see how freeing this is. This seems hard. This seems controlling maybe even. But I wonder if you see the freedom. What this does is it helps you know how to answer somebody who says, the Spirit says to me X, Y, Z. What do you say to them? Somebody comes to you and says, the Holy Spirit is giving me a sense that X is wrong and Y is wrong and that we should really be about this. How do you respond? You say, praise God. 
that we aren't bound to each other's mood swings. God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, appointed Paul in history as his authoritative delegate to pass on his instruction to his people. We have a word from God on how to build the house of God. That protects the church from the appetites of those who want to use the church for their own self-defined priorities or to require their own additional things. Let us also ask, who is Timothy? Paul introduces him as his true child in the faith. That's not a statement about biology. That's a, a familial image intended to communicate how similar and same Paul and Timothy are. What he's saying to them is they are identical in the faith. Paul and Timothy share their link to one another by the same hope in Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying there is he's saying to you, Ephesus, or Crossroads, if you love Paul, who has Christ's gospel, then you must also love Timothy. It would be like the way, me saying to you, the way you love me is by how you treat my boys. You treat my boys well, you're receiving me. You don't receive my boys, you have an issue with me. So Paul opens, reminding Ephesus of who Timothy is, a true child in the faith under the Apostle Paul, and they should listen to Timothy and this letter he's reading because he is the one bearing Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means ultimately, Paul's instruction to Timothy is our instruction by command of God. Flip with me to the end of the book for a moment. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 21. You might have a footnote, that very last word in, uh, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 21. That word, you there, is it singular or plural? It's plural. In the south, it should be translated y'all. That's the word there. It's grace be with y'all. Uh, it's a plural pronoun because what Timothy was to do was to read this letter as instruction to the entire church. That is to say, Paul's instruction to Timothy is Paul's instruction to the churches, which is to say this is God's word for you and me. And what this means is you and I don't have to look to Forbes magazine to determine what a good quality leader, what a good quality elder or deacon is. We don't have to ask who does everybody like or what does everybody want. We have authoritative words from God himself through our apostle. Practically, this means no one in this congregation, and that includes me, can bind this congregation to our own personal vision for a local church. You can't bind me, I can't bind you, and that's a good thing. That creates freedom because God's word binds, not what I want, not what you want. In Proverbs, right, when it says, um, where there is no vision, the people perish, it's not talking about a CEO leader who's really good at sending out 5, 10, 20-year visions. Uh, the word for vision there is revelation, word from God. We have God's word, so I don't get to bind you to what I want to do. You don't get to bind me to what you want to do. You don't get to bind each other. Instead, we get to say, God has spoken. We get to do what he says, and that's freeing for us all. So, what is the content of our Lord's command? Look at verses 3 to 4. This is the content of the command. Paul writes to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, 
remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. That is to say, verse 3 begins where Paul has said, hey, we've had this conversation already. He's saying, as I told you before, Timothy, remain where you are. Stay at Ephesus. And his letter appeals to that conversation. But pay attention to how the word for charge or command provides a backbone to this letter. You see it there uh, in verse 3. I charged you, that, or so that you may charge certain persons. See it down in verse 5. The aim of our charge. You see it down in chapter 1, verse 15. This charge I instruct to you. Flip all the way to chapter 6, verse 13. You'll see it again. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. Paul is saying, by virtue of Paul's command, Timothy is being commanded by God himself to defend this church. And he's to defend them against, verse 3, certain persons who teach hetero, that's the Greek uh, prefix there, heterodidoscalane, or hetero-different, right, where we get the word heterosexuality, hetero-teaching, different teaching. Timothy is to charge certain persons to stop with this different, this teaching that has no place in the church, different doctrine. Now, to be clear here, this does not only refer to corporate teaching times. Much different doctrine can be passed out of sight, over meals, even small groups or smaller studies. And it's clear that these teachers were not elders. They were self-appointed teachers of the law as they saw themselves. But the same command applies to us. And you can see the problem down in verse 19. A church that tolerates this different teaching is at risk of producing people whose faith is shipwrecked. See it there? Verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, and that good conscience is linked back to verse 5. We'll see in a minute. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And then verse 20 tells you who some of those are. Paul's calling them out. And... What this means for us is that good doctrine is good for us, and bad doctrine, whether it's from the pulpit or in small groups or in other conversations, harms us. And so Timothy is commanded for the good of God's people to confront this different teaching in the congregation. And you see why in verse 4. Verse 4, they strayed from healthy doctrine and devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, what's, what, there's a debate here as to what's being talked about. I think we have to understand these myths to be myths not in the Old Testament, but mythical readings of the Old Testament. Because if you look down in verse 6 and 7, actually verse 7, these are those who are teachers of the law. That is, the body of content that they were teaching was from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So the myths that are in mind there are some of the Jewish 
mythical interpretations of the Old Testament. That is, there'd be some mythical readings of Genesis chapter 6, for example, where the Nephilim would have been seen as maybe mythical heroes like Hercules or something like that. Paul is not saying that is what's going on in Genesis chapter 6. He is saying there is a sect of Jewish teachers who interpret it that way, and that's what's causing all sorts of wrong interpretations and mythical speculations and devotion to endless genealogies. Paul is rebuking mythical interpretations, which reminds us, a lot of people will say, well, I reject the Bible because I reject myths. Well, the Bible rejects myths. The Bible tells you all the time, don't believe myths. So if somebody says, I'm going to reject the Bible because I reject myths, you say, have you ever read the Bible? Timothy tells you, Paul tells Timothy, reject mythical interpretations. First Peter does the same thing, or Second Peter, one of them, um, tells you not to be devoted to myths. Because we, we don't want myths. We know myths are fake. We're talking about a historic salvation by a living God-man. Whatever the myth, it produced an obsession with tracing one's ancestral history. That is, to th- you think about when, they, when, when the Jews returned to the land and uh, some of them were trying to enter the priesthood. And what did they have to do? Well, they had to prove their ancestry. They had to prove that they were of the tribe of Levi. Something similar is happening here. Whatever their teaching is, it was incorrect. And notice it had two serious consequences. By being devoted to myths and genealogies, it produced two contrasting goals, or rather produced a positive result and a a negative one. And by positive, I don't mean good or bad. I mean this is what it created. Number one, it created speculation. The word for speculation there is useless thought among God's people. Thinking and categories and imagining that actually don't help at all. These are, and I just want you to see that for a moment, it's possible to go to a Bible study with your Bible open. It's possible to have a, somebody preach to you with their Bible open and give you totally worthless thoughts. Be aware what you watch on YouTube. Be aware what I say to you. Be aware of what that Bible study teacher is giving you, the small group leader. It very well could be speculation or worthless thought, he says. I wonder if there are any speculative views you've encountered here. I don't say that to pick on crossroads. I say that because I'm a pastor here, and so I have to speak to the speculations I encounter. I think every church probably has tendencies toward different speculations, but what speculative tendencies do we have among us? Two that have come to mind. I think eschatology is a good thing. I have a developed eschatology, and I'm happy to speak about it. Um, I try not to, to devote too much public attention to it in the sense that we don't bind people to certain eschatological views. But there are uses of the book of Revelation that excite speculation about last things. And as a result, you get speculative views increased among the congregation where certain members accuse others of being false teachers purely because of disagreements over the book of Revelation. That's useless speculation and silliness. Another speculation is not necessarily from the Bible itself, but it's just the tendency to speculate about one another's motives. We've speculated or made up our own definitions of worship or faithfulness, and because we have disagreements, we begin to speculate about those who don't feel compelled by the things we do. All of this can take place with open Bibles. So beware. Open Bibles don't mean inherently faithfulness. But it's not even the speculation that is the worst thing in verse 4. What is the verse 4 speculation getting in the way of? See it there? 
They've devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations that have gotten in the way of, and there's that word, stewardship, the management of God, the, the stewardship from God that is by faith. That is to say, it replaced what God had actually created the church for. The idea is that somebody thinks they're a good communicator, so they assume they should teach, they open their Bibles, maybe they claim private revelation, they see something happen in the Middle East, and they choose to speculate about what it could mean. But what is the effect on the congregation, on maybe some of the congregations or the whole? Well, it organizes the church or parts of the church around someone's fantasies rather than what God has clearly told us to do. And you get people busy building bunkers rather than building longer kitchen tables to have their neighbors over and share the gospel. The toleration of different teaching centers the church on things that prevent us from making disciples. And so I encourage you to think, what is the result of your lifelong participation in church? Have you been helped by the church to become a better steward of the gospel? Has your congregation produced members who make disciples? Or has there been no discipleship fruit in your life, even though you've sat in a congregation for years and years? Have you begun to evangelize your coworker as a result of being in a local church? Have you begun to lead your family in worship as a result of being equipped by your local church? Have you learned to speak more openly, lovingly, honestly about issues or offenses or sins between membership? Or has the last 20 to 30 years only made you more partial about a certain set of programs? There are certain discipleship rhythms that get in the way of gospel advancement. It doesn't mean that those things by themselves are bad. But when our appetite becomes for those things, rather than our personal responsibility to minister the gospel to our community, we miss the point. We miss the point of our time together. Because it is God's view of love that is the most compelling witness to the outside world. And only when God is telling us how to do that, do we begin to do so in a compelling way. What compels us and our personal preferences may not be what compels God. And it may not be what God has commanded, though it could still be good. But when good things get in the way of God things, they become problems. When bad teaching and speculative teaching reigns, the church sets the stewardship of the gospel aside for its own self-created interests. That's why many who have sat in church for many years have never told someone else about Jesus Christ or they've never actively discipled another believer in their life, but they have strong opinions about what a church should do. The church often chooses good things in the place of God things rather than stewarding the gospel we've been given. Who are we, church? Let us be honest with ourselves. I say that as one of you. Are we advancing the gospel in our community? Is Crossroads known for its evangelization or discipling of community members? If we were to close our doors, would there be less evangelism? If we were to close our homes, would less discipleship take place? What gospel advancement has happened in our community as a result of us being here? We need sound doctrine because bad doctrine is fruitless 
and it causes poor stewardship of the gospel. And I want you to see verse 5. Here's the purpose, because here's where I think we all agree. The aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So why must Timothy do the hard work of stopping speculative teaching? Because the goal is love. Speculative teaching gets in the way of love. How do you produce love in a church according to the word? Not, not, don't ask, what does Taylor think? Don't throw up the defense, well, that's just your interpretation. Look at the text. You don't do it by watching prophecy watches on YouTube. You ask what the apostle says in verse 10. The bad teaching has replaced the sound doctrine, and the telos, the goal of good doctrine, the goal, the telos of Paul's charge, is to stop speculative teaching so that this congregation in Ephesus would be loving. Because speculation and different doctrine stops the church from being a loving church. Did I say good? I hope I said bad doctrine or different doctrine. Now, I want you to see the connection here. Don't miss this connection. A doctrinally minimal church will by necessity be a minimally loving church. See that? A doctrinally minimal church will be a minimally loving church. Churches that try to reduce talk about doctrine don't actually achieve having less doctrine. They just have less planned doctrine. They still have doctrines unstated or made up on the spot. But because it isn't guarded and protected, our love will be minimized. It isn't that we're going to have less doctrine. I understand the desire to avoid the warfare that can take place over doctrine. That's why we do what's called theological triage, right? Triage, somebody comes into the hospital, have a heart attack and a broken arm. The nurse knows they can live with a broken arm, but can't live with a stopped heart. That's why the church uses wisdom to have doctrinal or theological triage. There are core doctrines that we must guard. There are secondary doctrines that, choose, that, that shape our local church, but there are tertiary, tertiary doctrines like interpretations of revelation that should never be the barriers by which we judge one another. So two questions then from verse 5. What is love and how does sound teaching accomplish it? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. I have to say it. It just keeps coming in my head all week long. I don't know what's going to happen when I get there. But what is love? Uh, there are, I'm going to give you three definitions. The standard, the, uh, the lexicon that, that Bible scholars use to, uh, defines love here. This is the word agape, which many of you know. Um, it's the quality of warm regard for and interest in another. Love is the quality of warm regard for and interest in another. I think it's helpful. I think it, it falls a little short because I think that word interest doesn't quite match what Scripture means by love. And I think the author knows that. If he did, I guess he'd change it. But I, I think he intends more by that word interest than what that word may mean to us. I think uh, another scholar says it well. Love stands for active response to God's grace expressed in sacrificial action done on behalf of others. I think that word interest should include sacrificial action. 
MacArthur says it well, agape is the love of choice, of will. It involves self-denial and self-sacrifice to benefit others. In other words, how do we know if we're a loving church? Well, are we a people sacrificing for one another? Or are we a people trying to sacrifice one another for our wants and interests? What's happening among us? Love is the enlarging of my joy to be so big that the well-being of others moves me to sacrifice and give up for their good. Not as I define it, not as they define it, but as God defines it. A loving church is not something where everybody loves to give each other a big hug. There's nothing wrong with hugs. I don't say that because I'm awkward when it comes to hugs. A loving church is a place where its members are primarily interested in relating to one another so that we could give up and make much of Jesus for each other's good. That's why we open our homes. We don't say as long as we smile at each other at church and then go home and never see each other. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 4, as we read this morning, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Paul says, Timothy, I want you to stop bad teaching because my goal is love. And by love, he means my goal is that the church would be like God. That is, that local church and our local church, and all local churches, should reenact the sacrificial act of the Son of God among one another. Paul says the aim of silencing bad teaching is to make the church a bunch of micro-messiahs. The dream church is where the person we are expecting to change most is ourselves. We want to be more like Christ and less like the old way that we've been saved from. That's why one mark of a loving church is that they don't want to be coddled by their sermons. They want their sins preached against, not the sins of others. Because we together want more of Christ and less of who had him hung on the cross. And this is a monumentally more difficult task. It isn't love to create a people who don't fight because you've tried to offer every service everyone wants to keep them happy. This group wants this, this group wants that, this group wants that. See, we've made everyone happy. They're a loving church. That's not love. That's Black Friday or Prime Day. We're not a marketplace. We have a definition incarnate, Jesus Christ. We're here to call each other to the greatness of his love and to help each other do that ourselves. Love is a community of doing the hard work to move one another towards Jesus, which means where it's a place where we have real, Honest conversations, confronting sin, discussing the truth, making time to be together and to know one another. But here's the truth. We don't do that naturally, do we? I'm speaking of me when I preach this sermon. We don't do that, as Paul says in Romans, as Brother Nate proclaimed was last week, because our hearts are corrupt. Who can understand it? Jeremiah asks. We bless God on Sundays because it feels good, but at the same time, even in the same hour, we curse someone else in his image. We praise Jesus for dying for us, but then we demand our congregations die for what we want. 
But Paul tells you how to produce a loving church here in verse 5. He says, the aim of his command to Timothy is love. That is, Paul, I want you to make Ephesus a loving church, and here's how you're going to do it. Love only comes when there's a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul is saying the source of love in the church is when its members have pure hearts, good consciences, and a sincere faith. I want to ask you this morning, and me, do you have a pure heart? Do you have a good conscience? Do you have a sincere faith? I don't mean are they perfect. I don't think Paul believes that by putting sound doctrine in his place that, that all of a sudden Ephesus will be perfect in every way. But what makes love flow from a congregation is when their hearts have been made pure, their consciences have been trained rightly, and they live in a realm of sincere faith. So what are those three things? Pure heart. It's a pure heart. In Scripture, the heart is the volition. It's the will. It's the decision maker. Or as Nate calls it, it's the wanter. It's the volitional mover. The, the wicked heart is the one whose heart or will is governed by self. It's the highest allegiance, its highest allegiance is to itself. It can use God as a means to that allegiance, but at the end of the day, it is about seeking one's self, whether in the realm of religion or out. A pure heart is a heart that's been made to seek for God. Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To have a pure heart means the fountain of your wants finds its energy, its movement, in seeking and obeying God. So when you think of church and what it should be, you should, if your heart is pure, has a pure reflex, it is not chiefly asking, what do I like, what do I want? It's asking, what has God said? What does God want? If you aren't asking what God wants for the local church, you will wickedly bind people in the name of God to do what you want. Pure heart is needed. Secondly, a good conscience. The conscience is the human's moral judge. It's that passive reflex that comes out when you see something that, that revolts you or if you see something that you want to praise. Uh, your conscience is telling you either this is good or this is bad, right? You raise your hand towards somebody and you'll see they'll either get excited for a high five or they'll flinch depending on how they've been shaped or what they've experienced. Your conscience is like a reflex. It's your moral compass, which is a reflex to tell you what's right and what's wrong. It's the internal judge that you carry around in you that condemns and commends based on how it's been trained. I ask you an honest question for a moment. Who in here has been driving around with their engine light on? Anyone? Anybody doing that because you know there's nothing wrong? Lauren's van for years has had an engine light on that has had nothing wrong. The mechanic continues to tell us there's nothing wrong with it. We've checked, everything's fine. Consciences like engine lights can break. Consciences like engine lights can work. So we either have a good conscience or a seared conscience. If you flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, you'll see it right there in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 2. The result of these faulty teachers is that they have seared consciences. It says, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. This is the same people Paul's addressing in chapter 1. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He's saying there's a conscience doesn't work. 
And as a result, they're forbidding marriage and certain kinds of foods. In what world would people in God's church forbid marriage? Well, in a world where they've been taught poorly, and as a result, their reading of Genesis, their mythical reading, condemns marriage. The very institution that Ephesians tells us is meant to be a picture of Christ and his church. How do they get there? They've been taught wrongly. And so their moral impulses are to pressure and bind the church against what God's commanded. They cannot love because their consciences are seared and they bind their congregation to things the church was never to be bound to. And I think in the opposite end, it means their conscience wasn't going off when wrong behaviors were emerging, like their own, uh, their own choice to bind against marriage. We have those check engine lights going off when there isn't something wrong, and we have no lights going off when there, things are dead wrong. And so I ask, how have our consciences been trained? Are they trained more by God's word, what God tells you to be upset about, or what God tells you to praise? Or are they more based on how you've been conditioned um, to feel like something you're entitled to or is right or is wrong? Have we gone years without discipling another believer and no check engine light has appeared in our hearts and minds to say, wow, maybe I'm not really a follower of Christ. If you have sat in church for years and years and you've never trained someone else to follow Jesus, you should have a, a, a check engine light coming on. When we think we're right about something... And even if we are right about something, do we ignore the check engine light of our conscience and justify our outbursts in public or in private or over electronic correspondence? If so, our conscience has not been trained by God's word, which teaches us how to speak to one another. When our consciences go off about what's lacking in the church, when that check engine light goes on, is it because we have scriptural warrants that's making us think that way? Or is it because we've been conditioned wrongly to think that a church ought to have something that God has never commanded? Could be good, but it's never meant to be a check engine light. When long-standing members are removed from membership for non-attendance, does your conscience allow you to excuse them by your never reaching out to them? Does your conscience excuse you for not urging them to be faithful? Does your conscience go off that your elders must be unfaithful because they aren't doing enough to keep them? Our consciences can be trained wrongly. When our conscience, our moral judge is broken, we fail to love because we pressure the church towards what alarms us, not what alarms God. A church with broken consciences cannot produce love because it becomes, it becomes regulated by things God does not command. And then it also releases one another from the faithfulness that God commands. It's like an unreliable dashboard that cannot be trusted. Some of you, though, should probably go get your check engine's lights checked out. Thirdly, the third thing you need, uh, and literally, your check engine light. I wasn't talking about your conscience there, um, so don't misread me. Thirdly, a sincere faith. A sincere faith is necessary. The idea of a sincere faith is an undivided life of being, right? Sincere is where that word for the pot comes from. Uh, a sincere pot is one without a crack going through it. And so it's saying, this is somebody who lives in a life that is entirely revolving around what Jesus says. It's the realm of being in which your living and operating takes place. False teaching fills somebody's mind with incorrect views of God. And in the church, what that means is their faith is divided 
between the biblical Christ and the God of their own making. And because of those three things, if our, if our wills have been not, not been renewed to, to love one another as God says, if our consciences have been seared and we force on people the wrong things that God has not commanded, if we are divided in loyalties because we, we fear Jesus, but we also fear what man thinks, so we pressure one another to do what keeps people, you will not love because you are divided. Yourself is divided. And so you force and you require things God never commanded where do those come from? Where do we get a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? None of that comes from us, right? We recognize that this is what human beings do. That's what we've been. We've done that. You and I cannot create those things in ourselves. It's why all human societies and structures are marked by wickedness towards one another. It's why I think one of the major fails of the deconstruction movement is they think they're getting away from the church. They're going to get away from humans. But anywhere you find humans, you're going to find the same problem. But church, we're here because there is one who can restore us, isn't there? There is a God who in all his excellencies... Do not count that a reason to overlook you and me. There is a God uppermost in his affections, supreme in all, uh, all uh, superlatives, perfect in every way. And instead of looking down upon his needy people, he was found among us, taking on the form of a servant, found in human form. He gave himself to die on the cross for our sins. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. Become. What does that mean? Well, become in the sense that you're counted righteous, but do you see the other way that word become is so pivotal? We get to become righteous, embody righteousness ourselves, be micro-Christ to one another. To see sinners and strugglers and to extend grace to carry where we cannot carry ourselves. We're to be a place that loves. That's what the world needs to see. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the way you sacrifice or love for one another. Not by the things you demand of one another. And Paul's whole point is that there's a word, there's a gospel that we can pass to one another that makes those things happen. Isn't that amazing? There is a word that has the power to produce a pure heart, to retrain the conscience, and to bring you into the realm of faith before the living God. It's God's word as it upholds the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your word gives light. Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. So let me say it this way, brothers and sisters, sound doctrine is how God gives life and produces love in his people. You have to order, if you want to order the church around love, you have to have sound doctrine. Listen to 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, and listen to why. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Real brief applications. What does this mean for us as a church? I've given you our statement of faith today. Um, this, is, this is our statement of faith. This is uh, what the church has had for years and years. This is what you have appointed elders and deacons to uphold. So I give that to you, and I want to commend to you in this elder deacon season, study this. Study it. Find scripture that supports it. I charge you, Christian, to steward your membership well here by knowing this statement of faith. It is what we have historically required for membership. Secondly, I charge you before God, do not nominate someone whose doctrine you do not know. Do not nominate someone whose doctrine you don't know. Which means, thirdly, I urge the church to consider asking elder and deacon nominations to defend their doctrine publicly. I don't mean put them under a bright light and try to find heresy, but I mean those who we nominate to public office, we should also ask to explain their doctrine publicly. That helps you have a good conscience about who you nominate. A lot of churches practice that. Bigger churches often have ordination committees where, you know, they got 100 people gathered to, to that, that's what I went through as I was ordained, is the Baptist church um, tested my doctrine in that way. Uh, the Presbyterians usually do it uh, before their presbytery. Um, lastly, to present elders and deacons, I would urge you to support the integrity and the transparency of defending your own doctrinal positions for your own good, and to serve this congregation. You guys should check me regularly to know if I'm upholding this statement of faith. People change in their doctrinal positions. Uh, I could change and waver from this. It is for your good that I publicly declare to you my doctrine every few years. So I urge you, church, know this. Do not nominate someone uh, whose doctrine you don't know, and consider asking elder and deacon nominations to publicly defend their doctrine. Why? Why should we do this? Because God is love. And because God is love, he's spoken to produce congregations of love. And congregations become loving when sound doctrine is flowing among them. Let's pray. Well, Father, we give you...